speaker, uh, is close the seminar promptly at quarter to five so people have the possibility to make a trek across to the Natural History Museum. If you find you can't make it there in time, stay around the reception at six. So we can take the reception at six in lieu of, uh, of, uh, of, of going to the pub, if that, that makes sense. Um, we'd be happy with, with, with that. Uh, we'll start with uh, announcements. Are there any announcements? <coughs> okay, in which case I'll introduce Michelle Pantacost, who doesn't need introduction. Um, she's a, a physician anthropologist at the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College. All right, so I'm going to start with a vignette that hopefully frames the discussion for us today on what I'm calling trials of the everyday spaces of global health in South Africa. It is February 2015, the end of another hot, dry season for Cape Town and the ninth month of my fieldwork with Nabomi and 14 other pregnant women and new mothers in Kailicha, the city's largest informal settlement. I know the acoustics in this room are quite poor, so if you can't hear me, please just raise your hand and I'll try and speak louder because this room is quite bad for that. We have brought Nabomi some cake for her birthday. We are seated in the lounge of her brick peach-colored house. We always enter through the kitchen door and its white security gate. The kitchen enters onto a lounge with beige tiles and a brown lounge suite arranged around a large flat-screen television and a glass coffee table on which we have some cake and some muffins. In the middle of our festivities, we are interrupted by a knock at the door. Nabomi motions to a man wearing a logoed t-shirt to come inside, and he is followed by a team of similarly uniformed women. The women introduce themselves as recruiters for a large-scale randomized control trial taking place across eight sites in the city. They give a brief explanation in Isiposa, the local language. The study will look at the effect on HIV prevalence if we started antiretroviral therapy as soon as possible rather than waiting for a certain CD4 threshold. They tell us that the study is funded by Bill Gates as well as a local university. A team member with an electronic device for recording data proceeds with a list of questions about who lives in the house. Nabomi explains that there are nine people, her mother in her 50s, her sisters aged 28 and 17, her brothers, aged 26 and 19, and the children, aged 14, two years, and three months. The recruiter asks Nabomi to complete a form with contact details, and she does so baby on lap. The whole process is very efficient. The professional nurse arrives and explains to Nabomi that she'll be taking blood. While the nurse sets up her kit, questions from the recruiter continue. What is your level of education? Grade 11, Nabomi answers. Do you go to church? Yes. Do you smoke? No. Do you work? No. Nabomi's been unemployed for some time. The nurse is ready to draw blood and the questioning stops momentarily. Nabomi stretches out her arm for the tourniquet. Just a prick, dear, the nurse says brusquely and takes the blood. She reserves blood in a vacutainer and that goes back into her cooler bag. She then pricks Nabomi's finger for a rapid HIV test. Nabomi is asked for her permission to test for HIV and asked to sign a consent form. She signs it. Questioning continues. Where do you have friends, they ask her. Mostly here in my area, she says. How many bedrooms are there in the house? Three. Do you have electricity? Yes. Questioning over. 
I ask if they only test for HIV and they respond that they also test for hepatitis B and syphilis. I ask how they choose their participants. The recruiter explains that they randomize by household. You must do one person in each household, the recruiter tells me. I notice they are, that they are not interested in Nabomi's brother, who keeps walking in and out of the lounge. I ask how they choose who in the household will take part. We do the head of the household, the recruiter says. The nurse interjects quickly and corrects her. They are supposed to randomize from all of the eligible participants in the house between the ages of 18 and 44. The computer has randomized such that Nabomi is the one to be recruited. She is given a leaflet that explains the study and it specifies that blood will be stored in South Africa and also shipped to the United States. I ask Nabomi if this is the first trial in which she has taken part and she says no. She tells us that she was paid 500 Rand or 25 pounds for her recent involvement in a study on HIV and TB. The nurse listens to this account and is unimpressed. They make the money, my dear. We are just the data collectors, the ground workers. They are sitting in an office and they will make the bucks. When the media asks, their name will be there. Professor so-and-so, my name won't be on anything. The nurse says that she is frustrated about doing the work that makes the study run without any recognition. The recruitment team packs up quickly, breezing out as fast as they have breezed in. I say hurriedly as they exit that I've noted down everything that has happened and might describe it elsewhere, but I will anonymize the name of the trial and the researchers. The nurse smiles, no problem. What I'm going to be talking about today is the ordinariness of trial participation in Cape Town, South Africa, where I've been engaged in field work since 2014 and where I've worked intermittently as a clinician for the last 10 years. This vignette illustrates the everydayness of research participation in Kailicha and my own awkward insertion into the scene. I, of course, was also conducting research when I encountered another research team in the living room of one of my participants. Specifically, I have conducted field work and done a lot of my clinical work in an area of Cape Town called Kailicha, the city's largest informal settlement and historically one of the sites to which city residents designated as black Africans by the apartheid government were relocated following mass force removals from the city in the early 1980s. And as you can see from this picture, the center of Kailicha is, is quite formal, but it has a very large uh, periphery of, and it's always kind of expanding, of more uh, informal housing. Now, it's important to note here that I did not set out to study trial participation in Kailicha. My research was focused on nutrition interventions in the early life period as part of a global campaign to focus efforts against malnutrition in this period we call the first thousand days of life, which is now considered a critical window for intervention based on science in the fields of the developmental origins of health and disease and epigenetics. I was interested in the first thousand days as a policy object, as part of perinatal clinical care, and as a new intervention in the lives of women and children in this place. So I met pregnant women at antenatal clinics in Kailicha, where the thousand days focus was part and parcel of antenatal care, but I spent the bulk of my time in the field with women, children, and their families in their homes. And it is here that I would encounter many other visitors to my informants' homes, including trial teams, community healthcare workers, NGO volunteers, and others. 
And this was at first surprising and eventually so commonplace that I understood it as a normal part of the everyday flows and rhythms of this place. And it helped me to contextualize the Thousand Days intervention, which in this setting is really one among a suite of interventions taking place under the label of global health. So I'm going to suggest here that there is something significant here that has perhaps been underplayed in anthropologies of global health in Africa. Now, as you all know, there's been substantial engagement in anthropological work on the subject of demographic surveys and how these are done, the practice of community research and clinical trials. We have decades of medical anthropology that has focused on this. And anthropologies of global health in particular have been concerned with the workings of global health, how interventions are delivered, how they align with local realities, and the institutions, metrics, and practices that constitute the global health project. Now, an image that's come to stand for a lot of the moving parts of how the work of global health is done is the archipelago, coined by Fensel Geisler. And as Geisler describes it, the archipelago is constituted by a set of links between a local university, a research center, an academic hospital, usually a scientific organization based in the north, uh, a European or American partner, uh, an international philanthropist like Gates, and then a range of not-for-profit organizations. So it's this combination of actors that Geisler describes that allows the work of global health to take place, especially in parts of Africa that where perhaps the state is failing or absent. So he describes these components uh, um, as the components of what Helen Tilly might call the living laboratory in African contexts. But what has received less attention and what I'm interested to discuss today is trials and the everyday. That is the ways in which trial participation becomes part of the ordinary or the mundane. While the archipelago has proven to be a robust concept for formations of global health elsewhere, I would argue that there's something about this image that neglects key places of global health work. Most importantly, a space we might call the domestic or the home. So a question I'm posing for the seminar is what might be revealed or made visible when the domestic is foregrounded in the archipelago. Drawing on my fieldwork, I will argue that the ethnographic scene I've described exemplifies something of new formations of the social in South Africa. And then I'm going to comment on what appears to be a return of sorts to thinking about space in medical anthropology and anthropologies of global health and what my ethnographic findings might have to contribute to that debate. So I'm going to start by going back to the Cape Peninsula to give you a bit more context about this place, uh, because I think these histories and this context are going to illustrate how archipelagos come to be in the case of Kailicha. So here we have uh, the Cape Peninsula on the western side, we have the Table Mountain Range, on the eastern side the Helderberg Mountain Range, and equidistant between these two we have uh, Kailicha here. So Kailicha is Cape Town's largest urban settlement. It spans 40 square kilometers. The census uh, would say that just under 500,000 people live here. Researchers would estimate that probably a million people um, live in Kailicha. It's bordered in the west by Mitchell's Plain, uh, a settlement historically designated during apartheid for mixed race or coloured um, people, in the south by um, the ocean. And then Kailicha is bounded in the north 
by this N2 highway, which is this orange line you can, you can see here. Importantly, um, here we can see this is data from the 2011 census. Uh, where people live in Cape Town remains highly racially stratified. So these are color bands represent different racial groups, and here you have Kailicha in, in the green. So the usual narrative places um, Kailicha geographically as this point between um, these um, two sets of um, mountains, uh, some 30 kilometers from the central business district. Um, and the N2 always figures prominently in work on Kailicha, maybe because you turn off the N2 highway to get into Kailicha from the city. But as uh, geographers Brun and Wilson observe, this highway is, of course, the only experience many Capetonians will have of Kailicha. This glimpse of government housing and closely built shacks behind a concrete pillar barrier that separates the township from the road. So they call Kailicha Cape Town's terra incognita, both because it's not well mapped in terms of its physical cartography and also because of its exclusion from the social landscape for many Cape Townians. In work on Kailicha, what one often notes is this kind of uh, characterization of it as a place of paradox. So it's both a place of opportunity and tragedy. As one policymaker put it to me, Kailicha is both magical and tragic. And uh, this narrative has kind of become so commonplace as to become cliched. So Kailicha is in but not of Cape Town in Detroit Neves formulation. It is a place that both captivates and appalls um, in another ethnography. Uh, if you look at the, the tourism material, it's a township marked by poverty and unemployment, but has its eyes on the future. If you read the business literature, it's a previously deprived locality and an investment destination. And certainly, uh, in my own fieldwork there, one can see how one might reach for that kind of description. You can see in the images that you get if you do a Google search, you have these kind of contrasting images of Kailicha as both dense shackland, places where sanitation provision and crime are an issue, but also a place where towns, township tourism is taking off, and um, this would be called part of what um, this term I often heard was the Kailicha boom, that things are happening in Kailicha. As well-meaning as these contradictory descriptions might be, uh, I would agree with Kelly Gillespie that the effect is to flatten rather than illuminate complexity and to repeat a distancing of Kailicha from Cape Town. As Gillespie explains, the township is reinscribed as a separate place, excluded from the imagination of the city proper and continuously peripheralized. So in the urban imagination, Cape Town and Kailicha are configured as not the same place, a slippage that denies recognition of the township as produced by and as part of the city. So this in some way explains how Kailicha comes to be an archipelago of sorts, at least in the city's imagination, very much driven by a history of spatializing discourse that separates the township from the rest of the city. In my own engagement with Ara, however, I've departed from a different configuration of city and township, drawing on Africanist literature engaged elsewhere on the continent with questions of the urban. And I position Kailicha, to use a Pavanellian phrase, as an organ of the city. And this organ does certain things for the city, including acting as a key site for activities of global health in Cape Town. Now, why is that the case? Kailicha really does map onto what Richard Rottenberg has described as the desirable trial population. You can see his definition here, and Kailicha 
does meet these criteria. There is sufficient technical and bureaucratic infrastructure there to run a clinical trial. There are willing trial subjects motivated by poverty, and there are a group of motivated local researchers who uh, engage in this work. And then, of course, we have a, a legal and, um, and ethical system of doing research in South Africa that's uh, robust enough to conduct research here, uh, but not that closely knit that one cannot do anything. So it really does map onto that um, definition. But Kailicha has a very interesting history when it comes to being involved uh, in clinical trial research. This, of course, this history is uh, heavily shaped by the histories of HIV and the provision of antiretrovirals in South Africa. So Kailicha was the site of uh, some of the first pilot programs in the prevention of mother-to-child transmission um, of HIV in South Africa. These were run by Médecins Sans Frontières uh, and activists such as the Treatment Action Campaign in conjunction with the University of Cape Town in Kailicha. And what these programs were able to do was to show that we could provide antiretrovirals at scale, which then led to the provision of antiretrovirals in the public sector later. So that's a very important history um, about this place and something certainly people are very proud of. Um, Kailicha was also the site of infamous clinical trials conducted by the private Dr. Rath Foundation, uh, who sought to prove that vitamins and nutritional supplements could um, help to treat HIV. And of course, that was challenged in court by activists, and um, uh, um, that was found to be spurious. Um, so Kailicha has remained a prominent site for HIV and TB research since that time. The original um, cohort of HIV, um, of, of people on ART in, in Kailicha, now um, has expanded to 40,000 people at last count, and that is a, a group of people who are actively engaged in, uh, in, in, as part of a research cohort, so very large. Um, but the government, by exception, that the HIV-AIDS crisis legitimated elsewhere on the continent has now given way to established islands of global health activity in this site. So MSF and other organizations who arrived to respond to a crisis have now remained to continue their work indefinitely and engage in work beyond HIV, including ordinary domains of primary care, such as maternal and child nutrition. Of course, I'm, the, the work that I'm engaging with here um, on clinical trials includes that of Ben Kim and Gwen, who's written about this as a kind of paradigm of experimentality elsewhere in Africa, um, as well as the work of Adriana Petrina, who notes that uh, trial participation can become a form of mainstream medicine for those who otherwise don't have access to care. In South Africa, anthropologists working closely with clinical trials have shown that participants do often enroll on the premise that they will personally benefit. But in South Africa, what is also described is that people enroll in trials because they um, see this as a hopeful enterprise, the promise of a better life captured in the trial. And this is Jonathan Stadler and colleagues who also contend that the trial affords an opportunity for um, participants to perform a certain moral subjectivity, that they can contribute to something bigger than themselves in acting as trial participants. They also comment that uh, trial participation offers a break from the boredom of sitting at home doing nothing. Um, and this is something that I heard over and over again from my own participants. People quickly tire of sitting at home watching TV, cleaning the house, having a nap, 
and the arrival of a trial team or a community healthcare worker or an NGO actually interrupts the monotony of what is actually quite a boring day. For Nobomi, however, I don't think the trial participation was about performing a moral subjectivity. I think this was more of an entrepreneurial activity in her case. I think what's particularly telling about her response to the arrival of this trial team was that although it was her birthday, she was very happy to engage with them and, of course, with me. I was also a researcher and I'd like to think I'd known her for a lot longer and maybe that's why I was invited to her birthday party. But, of course, she was quite happy to have multiple researchers sitting in her lounge that day. And after they'd left, I spoke to her a little bit more about this and then she said, well, this was actually her fifth trial. The first one was in 2010. I asked her what that one was about. I don't know, she said. They took bloods. They gave me a 150 rand pick and pay voucher, which is a supermarket voucher. In 2013, she was involved in a study about throat cancer, which involved what she called a throat scope. In 2014, she was involved on a study on TB, which included having gastric washings taken. So Nabomi is clearly quite happy to be engaged in these trials, even when there are quite invasive procedures involved. And she said, I like studies. They're good for me. If there is a sickness going on in me, I will know. So for her, some of these trials reassured her that she did not have cancer or TB, or they gave her access to an HIV test once a year without having to go to the clinic, which often involves quite a long wait in a queue. For other studies, she was taking part because she got a supermarket voucher or she was paid in cash for her time. Now, Nobomi might be perhaps the, the most enthusiastic of the informants in terms of the number of trials that she was enrolled in, but I don't think that she was entirely an outlier in the group of women with whom I conducted fieldwork. Um, and as I said, during the course of fieldwork, I'd often be with my participants when some or other person would arrive at the door. And for some people, like Nobomi, this was some kind of opportunity, uh, potentially um, a reward for involvement or something could be gained from this visit but for others this was a frequent and unwanted intrusion that was nevertheless, nevertheless tolerated as part of life in this place so for example um, that's actually Nabomi again Nonyameko who was staying in a more informal section of Kailicha said that she was quite unhappy about these regular visits by community healthcare workers um, and they were coming in the context of her having just delivered uh, a baby. They'd come at the end of her pregnancy and then they'd visited four times since she'd given birth. But never with prior arrangement. She said, you know, the problem is that they don't phone ahead. This is not a good idea. This is not my house. She had come to stay with friends in Cape Town to deliver the baby in Cape Town rather than in the Eastern Cape where she's from. She said, this isn't good at all. You should phone and ask. They don't give you a choice. And she contrasted this with our own time with her, given that my research assistant and I would normally phone her and see if she was available that day and if we could come and say hi. Um, and according to her, we were good researchers because we phoned ahead. They don't say, if you like, she told us. And on one occasion, we were there um, when these uh, community health care workers came by, and I could, I could see that she was quite distressed about this after the visit, um, and I could also see that there was quite an authoritative tone to the, the, the way that these uh, healthcare workers dealt with Nonyameko. They, they, in fact, didn't ask her. They said, we're here to, to measure the weight of the baby. For some of my other participants, 
they were themselves engaged in this work of going door to door. Because who, who is doing this, right? Um, and then the contradiction of being both a recipient of these programs and also someone who is perhaps employed by these programs becomes apparent. And uh, this is something that I discussed with uh, Trebisa and Zola, two other of my participants. And they explained to me that they need to visit 15 households each day as part of this community healthcare work around looking after infant well-being in order to earn the stipend that the NGO offers them, which is about a thousand rand a month or hundred pounds. So not a lot of money, uh, but this for both of them was the sole income that supported their families. And so they were engaged in what the NGO might frame as volunteering for a stipend, but what for them was actually a form of employment. And in fact, uh, Zola had described herself as retrenched from this program. So you now understand perhaps the authoritative tone with which these uh, women arrive at someone's door because they need to cover a certain number of households to earn that stipend. Uh, and what becomes apparent is that there's an entire political economy we might describe here for these activities. So what does Nabomi's birthday party have to tell us about what we might call the trial community in this part of South Africa? So what I'm really hoping to illustrate here is the way in which global health projects, such as large-scale trials, come to arrive in homes and interrupt ordinary life, the cutting of a birthday cake, the feeding of a child. So global health and the archipelago here is not only comprised of universities, research centers, hospitals, not-for-profits, and the links between these, but also of thousands of homes where the work of trial recruitment takes place. These activities of global health have a spatializing effect that also produces the domestic as an important site. The archipelago enfolds all kinds of spaces and inhabits layers of intimate life. There is an everydayness to how clinical authority is delivered to previously intimate spaces. Now, I'm not the first to be concerned about thinking about the everyday in relation to clinical trial participation. Charlotte Reeves has done recent work in Burkina Faso, thinking about how uh, being involved in a trial affects one's relationships, how one understands healthcare. Uh, Wenzel Geisler and Anne Kelly and colleagues have written about the relationships that form between trial participants and um, the research teams, which they describe, in, um, they describe the formation of a trial family and the kind of relational ethics that accompany that. In the South African context, Justin Dixon has also noted what he calls a nurtured degree of familiarity between uh, trial teams and participants. Uh, and he particularly describes uh, a form of care that these participants are receiving in addition to the experiment. Um, so again, echoing what Stadler and colleagues and what I've also found, that people are quite happy to have people come to their door because someone is asking them how they are. There's a form of care in someone just being there that day and inquiring about their health. But I want to take this a step further to think about the spaces in which such activities are taking place. The archipelago, which I say has become the kind of entrenched vocabulary of global health spaces, doesn't point to this domestic scene. And I think in, in, in we should really return to spaces of the ordinary and how they are constituted by these activities. For the remainder of the paper, I'm going to focus on this question of space. 
And this, of course, involves questions of boundaries of public and private space, state and citizen, and this takes on a very particular configuration in the South African case and its particular formations of the social and the way the social is spatialized in South Africa, given these histories of apartheid and racialized segregation, unfortunately, which persist today in many places. So the first question about space that's inevitably recalled here is about the boundaries of the clinic. As we know from significant work in medical anthropology, the clinic is not just a physical space, it's also an idea or a practice or a mode of power that can be enacted across multiple sites. So within that logic, we might then say, well, is this not a clear case of medicalization? We have biomedicine expanding to a new social domain. Or indeed biomedicalization, that we have these new political economies we can describe uh, and new forms of citizenship and identity you might describe Nobomi as a biological citizen. But I'm going to argue that it would be remiss to read it too simply here, um, and that while these, um, that these scenes are themselves scenes of global health and not simply an outcome of further medicalization. And my argument, which I'm now going to try and unpack for you, um, hopefully makes sense, and this is where I'd really appreciate your engagement, um, draws on the work of Vinkim and Gwen and James Ferguson. So Vinkim um, and Gwen argues that Medicalization in its prevailing formulation rests on an understanding of the social that corresponds to a Eurocentric version, so a Dekaimian model that has little application in African settings. For many African contexts, he argues, society in the Dekaimian sense is fragile and thus medicalization might manifest quite differently. Now, Ferguson is making a similar argument in the Southern African context. So... The, the social in the European welfare state formulation has much less bearing on the Southern African case study. And he historicizes the realization of the social in Southern Africa because of the highly racialized provision of, of welfare um, during apartheid and links the realization of the social in Southern Africa rather to a notion of fostering proper African workers living in proper European-style nuclear families. So... In the present discussion, this is important because when we try to understand the archipelago in the setting, our analysis cannot, to use a phrase from Ferguson, start from a point of the social, but must depart from this social, that is the historically particular social of Southern Africa. Um, so to borrow a phrase from Clara Hahn, then, medicalization has singular histories. So what is singular about medicalization in this particular instance? So Ferguson argues that the nuclear family that constituted the desired social of state interventions in South Africa no longer holds sway. In the provision of social grants uh, in South Africa, cash transfers are given to primary caregivers. Biological kinship is no longer what configures welfare transactions. And yet, Ferguson himself actually concedes, the mother and child diet still somehow is the key recipient of the transfer. And I'm going to argue that there is an analogy here in terms of how trial protocols might describe recruitment, so an individual, a household configured in a certain way, um, randomizing to recruit one individual, and then what actually transpires um, given the trial participation, like other activities, is configured by these local histories. So the recruiter states that they'll recruit the head of the household and then is then corrected by her colleague about the need for randomization. And Nobomi, and not her adult brother, uh, is uh, recruited in this instance, despite the fact that he keeps walking in and out of the lounge, helping himself to some cake. So what I'm trying to think through here is how 
the way in which the space is configured is shaped by local histories, in this case, a migrant labor system during apartheid that produced female-headed households and split families, and a more recent history of HIV and the configuration of the pregnant woman within that history. So in the history of trial participation in Kailicha, women, and especially pregnant women, have become the de facto trial participants because of the PMTCT research that has been done there. So despite the many ways in which there has been a grappling within public health and community research with the problematic use of the nuclear family or the household um, and, of course, the fact that people are highly mobile, they're moving between rural and urban locations all the time, despite all of that, I would suggest that there is still something about these frames that persists when these research practices have to contend with the everyday. I would argue... Oh, sorry, that's the previous... That's what I'm referring to there. I would argue that my um, fieldwork bears out that global health, too, has singular histories and that this is perhaps something that's being overlooked. Um, In the South African context, um, that history and the history of the social in this place is premised on a cartographic imagination of separate development and separate spaces. Now, understanding and engaging with space and place is, of course, something that has occupied and challenged anthropologists for a long time. And amongst us in this room, we will have an array of approaches to space from visual and material anthropology, bioculturalism, cognitive and evolutionary anthropology. But I'm focusing here on the ways in which medical and social anthropology and STS has approached this topic. And of course, then we're reading this through Marcus's work on multi-sided fieldwork, Gupta and Ferguson on space and identity, and then the huge amount of work that has been done on circulation and globalization which was seminal in how we've been rethinking sites and space in this discipline. Um, But there's been a kind of more recent return to this in medical anthropology and anthropologies of global health. So um, Claire Herrick, who's actually a geographer, has recently uh, written a piece about this, stating that medical anthropology has become overly concerned with the people who come first, of course referencing a key volume by um, uh, Beale and Petrina. She argues that this in itself has spatial consequences that reproduce problematic geographies of global health that then focus on what she calls archetypal spaces of suffering, uh, which then inevitably privilege biomedical contexts and reinforce biomedical frames. So this is a a kind of argument that's coming out at the moment, which is um, medical anthropology needs to move out of the clinic. Um, And it's been said elsewhere by, in other ways, by Emily A. Stowe and Megan Carney, who've argued that we need to demedicalize health. Um, They are doing ethnography in the kitchen. Herrick is concerned with other places such as gyms, supermarkets, public parks. Um, And then in in another vein, but but similarly, um, Raymond McKay, writing about Mozambique, is concerned to reinsert urban space back into conversations about health and care, arguing that it is impossible to think these outside of the gendered and emplaced relations that constitute life in cities. Uh, Alex Nading and Abigail Neely have recently called for a place-based approach uh, to global health that highlights the particularities of places, uh, while Anne Kelly and colleagues working on malaria have recently called for attention to other spaces of concern. And here they're talking about alleyways, yards, spaces around what global health might conceive of as the household. And of course, anthropological SDS has also been bringing up this question of space more recently. 
So these are all articles from the last two years that I'm, I'm citing, 2017, 2018, um, and imply, maybe I'm incorrect, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, imply some kind of consensus among scholars of global health that there's some corrective required to address the tendency in global health research to A, focus on people and the suffering subject, which has its own set of debates we know about, um, and B, this focus on institutions, regulation, training, measurement, metrics, which has been a key focus of, of global health work um, in the last while. I would like to take this debate a step further to argue that simply, um, apart from simply including other places in our purview, we need to return to the, with the, to the very fundamental concern with how spaces of the ordinary are constituted or produced. And of course, there are genealogies of space and the ordinary that one can engage with them. The ordinariness of trial participation for people living in Kailicha is indicative of the spatializing effects of global health. So this is really the key point I'm trying to make. That indeed, we should not go out and study other spaces of global health, but rather that we need to be aware of how global health configures space and the routes and flows such configurations take. Ordinary spaces are vital to the global health project, but they are constituted and configured by spatialized histories. So... I think my ethnography shows that in the South African instance, both the state and the parastates are imbricated in people's intimate lives. There's this ordinariness to home visits by NGOs, state healthcare workers, and research teams, while at the same time, other visits that might be considered ordinary in other parts of the city, like the postman delivering the post or the refuse collector collecting the rubbish, are not ordinary in Kailicha and are indeed often the cause for activist protest in this place. So if global health has singular histories, that history in the context of Cape Town is one of a distinct spatial distribution of illness and disease, and thus of the clinical labor of trial participation. In South Africa, this is the distinct history of spatialized inclusion or exclusion, which continues to configure the roots and flows of people, capital, and technologies that make the presence of a trial team in one's living room entirely ordinary, but only in certain parts of the city. So indeed, this is a central concern of the paper, to show how the living room, the home, the township, and the relations that are figured through domesticity and kinship, indeed the imponderabilia of everyday life, are in fact vital organs of global health, or rather spatialized effects of relations between states, organizations, blood samples, and demographic data, that require these intimate forms of labor to produce the circulations and effects that go by the name of global health. For Nobomi, participation in multiple trials is simply part of the armature she deploys to continue forging life in this place. And as such, the circulation of a trial team through her living room is as everyday as her neighbor sauntering in and out of the house as she often did while I was there. I'd like to argue that thorough analyses of the forms and effects of global health and how they manifest in the everyday can neither put people nor places first but must engage the question with a deep and sustained attention to how bodies and environments are made and remade over time, in particular socio-political milieus. And here, um, it's interesting that we're about to go to the Harris Lecture after this and talk about biosocial anthropology, because I think that has a lot to offer to this question. So as Margaret Locke and George Nivona have recently said, we need to shift from thinking local biologies, as we have done for a very long time in medical anthropology, to situated biologies for more complex analyses of the relationships of body, environment, and space-time. 
And this is really where my other research has taken me, to think about how space fits into new programs of biosocial research, given the critiques of an overt focus on people or on certain sites, as I've mentioned. I think um, attending to space is not... Uh, it doesn't need to be binary. Attending to space, if we use Doreen Massey's definition, is attending to relationality, or what she calls the simultaneity of stories so far. So, to conclude, I'm going to leave you with this image, which um, I really appreciate. It's taken by South African artist Vincent Besedenote, titled False Bear One. And this is from a series Besedenote calls Separate Amenities. He's interested in how the coastline itself represents the spatial histories of racial segregation in South Africa with separate beaches for different race groups during apartheid. What I appreciate about this image is its decentering of our view of the Cape Peninsula by taking the ocean and the coastline as the orientating focus. The ocean takes up at least half to two thirds of the frame. As such, to foreground the ocean is one way to unsettle the usual positioning of Kailiche. So hopefully, in the last hour, I've helped to decenter our perspectives on spaces of global health, how global health archipelagos are constituted, but also perspectives on this peninsula and how we should be approaching the question of space when we write ethnographies of the city and how we delim delimit the city when we do that. This effort to decenter and recenter is vital if we are to understand the relationalities that constitute the work of global health and the assumptions about spati spatiality and spaces that anthropologies of global health need to grapple with at this point.